Our first scripture today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Listen now for the word of God for you and for me. Send out your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will get it back. Divide your means seven ways, or even eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. When clouds are full, they empty rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Whoever observes the wind will not sow, and whoever regards the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know how the breath comes to the bones in the mother's womb, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not let your hands be idle, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. A memory uh, popped into my mind as we realized that last, some of last week's bulletins were passed out. I remember I was a, a seminary intern at a large Presbyterian church, and I was leading worship for the very first time, and I had the wrong bulletin. And there is nothing like leading the call to worship when people are like, where is he? And I, I literally read my part and the congregation's part while they just looked baffled the whole time. Alas, our second text is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 14 through 30. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, telling them a story. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. At once, the one who had received the five talents went off and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I've made two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, master, I knew that you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him 
and give it to the one with 10 talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless servant, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, your word afresh to us this day. Even this difficult word, so we may hear a word from you of encouragement, of challenge, of change and transformation, even to be made more and more in the likeness of Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. As most of you know, uh, we celebrated our 175th anniversary on January the 8th, just a couple of Sundays ago, and uh, in light of this historic milestone, I decided to put together a short sermon series reflecting on this uh, historical moment and reflecting on uh, who God is calling us to be as we continue to endure. If you were with us last week, I said there was a part of me that wanted to preach a sermon series on what we've done right here as a church. I wanted to talk about how we uh, or any congregation might make it to see 175 years, and then it dawned on me that that's not the right question, that's not the right sermon series. Instead, the question is, what should a congregation do as it endures? What should a congregation continue to do as it sees new life, even as we enter our 176th year of ministry? So last week, we reflected on the centrality of the gospel. We reflected on its manifold witness. I I shared some uh, about our call uh, in this secular age, our call not being to try to convince people to believe in God. That's not our call. Our call is not to try to convince people to participate in church activities, to show up on Sunday. Instead, our call as a congregation is to bear witness to what God is doing in our lives. Our call is to bear witness to what God is doing in the life of this congregation, in the life of this city, and in the life of the world. Well, today, I'd like to suggest that a congregation that finds itself enduring, a congregation like ours that enters its 176th year, is a congregation that is willing to take spirit-led risks, and is a congregation that has the courage to act. A congregation that is willing to take spirit-led risks, and a congregation that has the courage to act. Last Sunday, one of our uh, members... Uh, brought their four-year-old granddaughter to worship. She lives out of town, uh, and she's had very few experiences uh, in a congregational setting, in a faith community. So what's routine for many of us and many of other, of our children, rather, uh, when it comes to worship and the practices of the faith is quite foreign to this little girl. The little girl was aware enough, however, to ask her grandmother a profoundly theological question. As they sat down and they found their seats, as the prelude was praying, she said, Grandma, where's God? And she started to kind of look around the sanctuary, looking at the windows, looking up to the balcony. Aren't you supposed to see God when you come to church? 
Isn't that why we're here, Grandma? Where is God? Now, at that precise moment, as they're having this little exchange, I climbed up into the pulpit to bring the welcome and the announcements. And as soon as I started talking, the little girl's eyes widened, and she pointed at me and said, is that God? To which her grandmother said, no, honey, God has hair. She didn't actually say that. She said something actually quite instructive, and it stuck with me this week. Uh, She said, no, that is one of God's helpers. And as you look around at the congregation, you'll see a lot of God's helpers. While that was profoundly theological in its own right, she was not satisfied. Where is God? How come I can't see God? It's not an easy question to answer to a four-year-old, let alone an entire congregation that gathers on a morning like this one. Where is God? Question stuck with me this week, especially in my preparation for the sermon. And I was thinking, uh, and follow me here, I was thinking first about what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 46, when he said, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God, but when you see me, you see God. That truth is later reiterated in Ephesians, the first chapter, the 15th verse, when the writer says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We're taught in scripture that God is invisible, that we cannot see God with our own eyes. And yet here in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying that when you see him, you actually see the creator God. Jesus also taught us in the fourth chapter of John, the 24th verse, that God doesn't have a body, that God is spirit. And the Christian professes that this God who is spirit breathes God's very spirit into the world, into our lives, so that we're not alone, so that we have an advocate, so that we have a leader. We have someone to guide us, to speak to our conscience, to shape our community, to lead us in the paths of righteousness, as the psalmist says. And that spirit does something in us. And those who know the the fruit of the spirit, the joy of the spirit, know what Paul talks about in Galatians 5.22, that the fruit of the spirit is is peace and, and joy and patience and love and kindness and generosity and gentleness and self control. Paul says, against these there is no law. That while we cannot see God, we know of God's spirit. And we know of God's spirit because God's spirit is producing fruit in our lives by God's grace. Paul ends that section of Galatians by saying, if we live by the spirit, let us also be guided by the spirit. So while we cannot see God, literally, I mean physically see God with our eyes, we trust that God's spirit is yet still in our midst that God's spirit is still moving in us and speaking to us and leading us and producing fruit, good fruit, in our world and in our lives. So I want you to just hold that for just a second. Just hold that thought for just a second. I wanna turn our attention to the parable uh, in Matthew. And as we get into this uh, parable from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, a critical concern begins to emerge Uh, And that is the reason why Jesus not only tells this parable, but tells several parables at the end of 
Matthew 24 and into Matthew 25. And the concern is actually voiced by Jesus himself. He captures it. And it's a concern of the disciples, but he, he captures what they're feeling in the moment. And this all happens again at the end of Matthew 24 and into Matthew 25. And for context, Matthew 26 starts the passion narrative. That's, that's when the passion narrative starts in the book of Matthew. That's when we hear about the story of the Last Supper and we read about Jesus' betrayal at the hands of his friend Judas Iscariot, one of his followers. We hear about his sham trial. We, we hear about his torture. We hear about the road to the cross. We hear about his crucifixion. We hear about his burial. And then we hear about his glorious resurrection. And so Jesus here knows his time is coming. The disciples have a sense that his time is coming. And they are wondering this fundamental critical question. What do we do when he's gone? Right? Like, What are we going to do when we no longer see him with our own eyes? When we can't see him anymore? What should the disciples do when his physical presence has left them? What should the disciples do between his ascension and his second coming? What should a church that's been around for 175 years without the Lord's return do when we literally can't see Jesus with our own eyes? In responding to that question, Jesus tells a handful of parables. And we heard one of those parables this morning. It's often referred to as the parable of the talents. Many of you have heard this parable before, but I trust that some of you are hearing it for the very first time. It begins with a man who's about to go on a long journey. And before he departs, he calls his servants and entrusts them with eight talents. Eight talents, five to one, two to another, and one to a third. Now, a talent was a tool used in the ancient world to measure a particular sum of precious metal, gold or silver or another precious metal. And many historians believe that a talent, one talent, represented 20 years of wages. 20 years of wages, one talent. Now considering that life expectancy during the first century was about 40 years old, what we're talking about here is that the first servant receiving two and a half lifetimes worth of wages. Two and a half lifetimes worth of wages. The second, a lifetime worth of wages. And the third, this is no small gift, half a lifetime of wages. I thought it'd be interesting just to do this in modern terms to sort of create a contextual equivalency to our dollar if you think about that the average age of a, a, a U.S. citizen is 77 years old, and you think that uh, the average salary per annum for a U.S. citizen is $55,000 a year, the first servant in, in contextual terms today would have received $10.2 million. $10.2 million. The second, $4.2 million, and the third, $2.1 million. What we're talking about here is their reception of a very, very, very large amount of cash. A very, very large amount of money. The parable continues almost immediately with the first servant trading on those five talents, making five more. 
We're also told that the second servant does the same and he, does his, he doubles rather, uh, his talents as well. The third servant, however, does something interesting. Instead of trading it uh, on it rather or investing it, he buries it in a hole in the ground. He buries it. After a long time, Jesus says that the man came back and he brought his servants to him and called them to account. The first two showed that the man showed the man rather that he had they had doubled uh, his wealth and pleased with these two servants. This is what he said: "Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things." I just want to pause right there. How interesting is this line? Now we know how much these talents are worth. I think it indicates how rich the guy is. He thinks $21 million is a little thing. Do you you follow me? That's how wealthy this guy is. And he says, now that you've been faithful in little things, I'm going to put you in charge of big things. Of big things. The third servant, however, noted his fear because he believed his master to be stern and harsh. And this is really interesting. So in this act of self-preservation, we know what this is like, right? An act of self-preservation, an act of safety or security, he's so afraid that he buries the talent. He interred it instead of investing it. And this third servant then stood under the judgment of the master in the story, for the master is disgusted by his unwillingness to risk his unwillingness to risk. The master took the single talent from the third servant and gave it to the first. And as if that reprimand was not enough punishment, the master cast out the servant into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know where this outer darkness is, but I don't want to go there. In other words, what Jesus is saying, and he's speaking, remember, he's not speaking to the whole world. He's speaking specifically to anyone who would claim to be his disciple. He's saying that there's hell to be paid for any Jesus follower that chooses safety and self-preservation over risk and courage, over the risk and courage to act on what God has put us in charge of, what God has shared. No doubt, this is a really, really hard word. Sometimes I'd like to rewrite it to fit my own interpretations. Uh, But we must wrestle with it as it is, even as it wrestles with us. And as we consider the meaning of the parable, we could take it in in many different directions. But I first want to just simply state the obvious, that Jesus is the master in this story. right? I mean, that's obvious. That's undisputed. And, And right off the bat, because Jesus is going away for a long time, Right off the bat, we noticed the superabundance of the man. We, we, we notice how much the man has and how much he's willing to bestow. These are not token gifts. These are not leftovers. This isn't $20 in your wallet or that you found at the bottom of your purse. This is a substantial gift. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary gift. And even though this parable... Uh, employs an economic framework, Jesus is not saying, hey, I'm going to give you a bunch of cash before I leave. 
That's not what Jesus is saying. The prosperity gospel is heresy. It's nowhere to be found in this story or any other story in the New Testament. So what is it, if we're gonna analogize this parable, if Jesus is the master, what is it that he's actually wanting to give to his disciples? That's the key question. Because he's not gonna give money, it represents something. And this money is of great value. So we have to ask the question, what is of great value to Jesus that he entrusts with his disciples? That he's ready to put them in charge of as he makes his journey. What is the most valuable thing he can give them? What's the most valuable thing he can give us? That's the question. And the answer is his life. It's his life. It's like everything that he is he puts into their hands. His love, his mission, his justice, his forgiveness, his mercy, his reconciliation, his faith, his hope, his love. He, he, he entrusts the disciples with all of it. All of it. And he trusts that they will multiply it. In fact, this may be the most audacious thing that Jesus said in the New Testament, I'm convinced, Chris, the most audacious thing Jesus ever said. The Gospel of John, the 14th chapter, verse 12, he says to his disciples, you will do greater things than me. How audacious is that? Because he believes that what he is gonna give them is enough, and when they have that, and they steward that, it will multiply. And what will it do? It will bring joy to God and joy to the world. This won't happen because we're good or we're religious or pious. This only happens because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. It only happens when we make room for the Spirit to, to dwell in us and lead us. And this Spirit, we, we've got to be clear about this, this Spirit calls us to risk like those first two servants. Not to inter, but to invest to not be ruled by fear, but to be ruled by hope that what God has entrusted to us is enough and that it can be multiplied for the joy of God and for the joy of this world. You know, I'm thinking a lot, this series, of course, has been rooted in, in, in this 175th anniversary milestone that we've had. And I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which this congregation leaned into spirit-led risk over its years. It hasn't always been perfect. Let's be very clear about that. It hasn't always been perfect. But, but this congregation has demonstrated throughout its history the spirit's work in leading us to risk, to not bury, but to invest. When the spirit led the congregation to move to the outskirts of the city of Atlanta, all the way out at 16th and Peachtree, when all of this was just meadows and Ansley Park was barely an idea, those congregants said yes to the Spirit leading them to this place. When the Spirit led the congregation to launch the prayer breakfast for the whole community, many of you know this, you were around, some of you were around for this, there was a, a wonderful early service in the morning in Fifield Hall and a breakfast was served, but it was really kind of like a members only kind of event, not by intention, but that's just how it started. And soon guests from the community started to come and the church said, you know what? This shouldn't just be for us. This should be for the whole community. When the Spirit led the congregation to call our first black pastor, 
Charles Black, the Reverend Charles Black, even in the midst of lingering racism, even in the midst of lingering prejudice, even when congregation members, not a ton, but some left because of his skin color. The risk that 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 PNC and this congregation took in saying yes to that call and the risk that Charles Black took to say yes to God's call to serve a predominantly white church, that yes changed us forever. When the Spirit called us into mutual relationships with global partners or helped launch Child Spring International or Samaritan Counseling Center or the Women's Transformation Center, when the Spirit led us to be a more welcoming community for those who have been traditionally marginalized in the church, in ordination, in spiritual leadership, and in marriage, and when the Spirit led us to risk and engage the largest capital campaign we've ever seen in our history, to fulfill a vision that God has put on our hearts in our campus master plan. The Spirit's work has been calling us to risk, not bury, but to invest, to invest. The Spirit's work is sometimes risky, and the Spirit calls us by grace to risk, to not bury, but to invest. And so as I close, I want to invite us to think about what it might mean that Christ has entrusted you and has entrusted me, has entrusted us with his message, with his faith, with his hope, with his love. Perhaps you could ask the question, where is the spirit calling you to risk in this season of your faith and life? Perhaps it's something simple, which feels pretty big, like signing up for the women's retreat. It feels big because you're you're new and you don't know many people, but maybe the Spirit's saying, hey, it's time to step out. It's time to get connected. Or perhaps the Spirit's calling you to say yes to a particular ministry that you absolutely are convinced that you have no skills for and no experience, but you can't get it out of your mind or out of your heart that God is calling you to do this. Maybe it's the Spirit calling you to invest in forgiveness. Forgiveness is risky work. Reconciliation is risky work. Maybe the Spirit's calling you to reconcile with an enemy, to forgive someone who's hurt you, to build a bridge in a relationship that has been divided. Perhaps the Spirit is calling you to risk a greater financial support in the ministries of, the, of this congregation and beyond that will stretch you and will invite you to lean into the notion of sacrificial giving. Maybe the Spirit is calling you to prioritize your calendar in a better way, to carve out time for the things that really matter, to take the risk and say no to a bunch of things so you can say yes to the right things. Maybe the Spirit's calling you to befriend the poor or the vulnerable in our midst. Maybe the Spirit is calling you to the risky work of confession or repentance or restoration. Maybe the Spirit is calling you to finally step into that treatment center. Maybe the Spirit's calling you to finally get clean. Maybe the Spirit's finally calling you uh, and you're ready to, to get counseling for your marriage or for your own mental health. Maybe the Spirit is calling you finally to accept that you're accepted by God, to take the risk, to open your heart to that truth, that God has entrusted you with something to share, something of value, something to multiply in and for the world, that God has given God's very self to you and to me. Don't inter it. Invest it, even as the Spirit invests in us. May it be so for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world. Amen.